Welcome to the DNA of Creation. I'm your host, Gabriel Horan. Each week we look at the weekly Torah portion through the lens of Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, and Hasidus, and we attempt to bring out themes, spiritual themes that are both inspirational and practical. And this week we're going to do a quick summary of what we've learned until now. This week's Torah portion is called Toldos, which literally means offspring or generations. And in this week's Parsha, we're talking about who will be the continuer of the legacy of the Jewish people, who is going to be the father of the Jewish nation. So let's just run through a quick summary of what we've learned until now. The Torah starts in Genesis, Bereshis, and we discussed the idea of different spiritual energies with which God created the world, starting with the what's called Chachma, the spark of, of insight, of intellect, the mind of God, so to speak, which then goes into Bina, which is the cognition, the cognitive mind, the analysis, the analytical mind, which breaks down that spark of inspiration into its parts and pieces. Then goes something called Das, which is the, the knowledge, when it becomes part of you, when uh, the birth of the idea, which then leads to emotions. And that was Parshas Bracious. In Parshas Bracious, we also talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We said the word knowledge, again, from a biblical sense, means that Adam knew Eve. It means the intimate connection between good and evil. When Adam and Eve ate from that tree, good and evil became mixed. The world became a place of confusion. And then the curse of Adam is that he has to go out into the world to work, to discover and separate between the good and the bad, to find the pieces of godliness, to reveal the oneness and the purpose and the goodness that's hidden in the pieces of the puzzle, to literally put back the puzzle, to reveal the good that is hidden in this world. So that's Bereshus. Then we talked about Noah and the flood. We talked about the energy and the emotions that break down into chesed and gevurah. Chesed is kindness, expansion, giving, which corresponds with water. Too much water is responded. The response of too much kindness is too much water, and we have a flood. We talked about the other energy, gevurah, which is strength, individuality, contraction, receiving, and we talked about the generation of Sodom, which had too much gevurah, that refused to do kindness, too much individuality, which was destroyed with fire. And then we have the Avos, the forefathers, who correspond to these energies. Avraham, according to Kabbalah, corresponds to Chesed. Avraham's life is all devoted to giving, to doing kindness, to transcending borders and boundaries, traveling from one place to another. Avraham is called the Ivri, the one, the Hebrew, the one who crosses over because he comes from, he's constantly crossing over different lands. And Avraham is tested to try to come back to middle. The goal is to take our energies and to try to return to middle, to the middle way, which in Hebrew is called Teferis. That is the place of balance, harmony, beauty, and truth. So Avraham is tested with the ultimate act of gevura, of strength, slaughtering his son in order to try to bring him back to balance. Yitzchak, Avraham's son, is exemplifies the character trait of Gevura. 
Yitzchak lives within borders and boundaries. The Torah tells us that Yitzchak is unable to leave the lands of Israel. He's never allowed to cross into another land. And he is ultimate strength and self-sacrifice. For him, it's not a test to give up his life for God. That's easy for him because he lives with total self-control. And he's tested in this week's partial with all sorts of acts, all sorts of issues with wells, digging wells, because Yitzhak's test and different disputes about the wells, and the wells belonged to his father. They were covered up and taken control by others. And he's trying to access the kindness that's hidden because he has to be challenged to go in the other direction. And of course, last week we talked about soulmates, that Avram, who's the characteristic of kindness, has to marry Sarah, who is strength and self-control. She's constantly limiting him and telling him uh, what's what the proper boundaries are for him and his offspring. And Yitzchak, of course, who is strength, has to marry Rivka, who represents kindness. Now, Avraham's name represents the father of many nations. Av means father, and Avraham refers to Av Hamon Goyim, the nation, the father of many nations. And in last week's in the last few weeks, Avraham sends away Yishmael. Yishmael is Avraham's first son, and he is, Avraham according, uh, listens to Sarah's advice, and he rejects Yishmael of being the rightful heir to the Jewish nation. Yishmael is the, uh, the extreme of Avraham's characteristic. Avraham, whose chesed, gives birth to Yishmael first, and Yishmael is too much chesed. Again, too much chesed means too, lack of boundaries. Yishmael engages in stealing and sexual immorality because he lacks proper boundaries. He's a child who is raised without gevura, right? If you raise a child with too much kindness, so that child doesn't know proper boundaries. So that's Yishmael. Yishmael is sent away. He goes on to become the father of the Arab and eventually Muslim nations. So Avraham is the heir to the to Islam is, is an Avrahamic religion. It comes straight out of Avraham. It's probably the closest religion to Judaism. Then, Avraham, at the end of last week's parsha, has other sons with Yishmael's mother, Hagar. And these sons are not mentioned so much in the Torah. A few know about them. What does Avraham do? He sends these sons away to the east, the Torah tells us, bearing gifts. And the commentaries explain that these gifts are actually spiritual gifts. They're different types of spiritual systems. And some explain that these sons of Avram go on to found the what eventually becomes Hinduism, the Vedic traditions that are eventually are brought to India from the Aryans who come from another land, according to historians. And so we believe, some believe, that those are actually the sons of Avraham who bring uh, Abraham's spirituality to India. And uh, there are a lot of different interesting linguistic connections between Sanskrit and Hebrew and many of the, uh, the Sanskrit terms that, we're, famous, that are, we're familiar with from Hinduism, such as Dharma and Karma and, uh, and certain names of the gods have very similar connections to different Torah concepts. But that is for another time. In this week's Parsha, we're going to be introduced to another uh, religion, world religion, and that is 
the progenitor to Christianity and the Western world, again, through one of the descendants of Avraham. So let's go into that journey and understand what the root of Christianity and Western civilization is. So this week's Parsha tells the story of the birth of Yaakov and Esav. Yitzhak and Rivka give birth to twins, and she is very confused, because as she's pregnant, she doesn't know that she has twins, she feels a lot of tension within her. And the Talmud explains that when Rivka walks past a house of monotheism, there were prophets around in the time of Avraham, in addition to Avraham, those were Shame and Aver, the the child and great-grandson of Noah, who had monasteries in which they prayed and meditated and learned some sort of spiritual wisdom uh, about God. And whenever Rivka would walk past one of these houses of monotheism, she would feel the child start kicking. She said, wow, he must be excited. He he must want to connect to God. But then whenever she'd walk past a house of idolatry, the child would kick again. She said, what's going on in This is a schizophrenic child. So Rivka went to inquire of the prophet. She went to Shem and Aver, and as we discussed before, uh, okay, we'll go back to it soon. So she goes to Shem and Aver, and it's a question why she went to Shem and Aver, why she didn't go to Abraham, who was also a prophet. But for some reason, she goes to the other school of monotheism, and she says, what's going on? Why am I having this tension inside me? whenever I go past the house of monotheism or house of idolatry. And the prophet responds to her, and he says, you have two great nations within you. And these two great nations are going to be in conflict. And whenever one rises, the other will fall. Whenever one falls, the other will rise. And the small one, the older one, will eventually serve the younger one. So he answers her question. There you have twins inside your stomach. So Rivka is satisfied with the answer. But we have to understand, what, what was this tension? What was going on? And why did she specifically go to shame and not to Avraham to explain what was going on within her? Additionally, what was this fight between Esau and Yaakov? So the children are born, and the Talmud says that even at the, before they were born, they were fighting, these two brothers. And the Talmud says they were fighting over who would inherit this world and who would inherit the next world. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that means because it seems to me that there's two worlds and two brothers, so let one world take, brother take this world and let another brother take the next world. So I'm not exactly sure what that fight is, and I'd like to try to understand it. So the two brothers are born. And Esav comes out first. And Esav is red and hairy. And they name him Esav, which means done, finished. And then comes out Yaakov. And Yaakov is holding on to Esav's ankle. And they name him Yaakov, which means ankle or heel. And uh, and the two brothers go in very different paths. So another question that always bothered me is, if Asa, that we believe that God gives everyone free will, that although it is decreed before our birth, if we'll be rich or poor, if we'll be strong or weak, smart or, or mentally challenged, 
it is not decreed whether or not we'll be good or bad because we have complete free will to choose the path, our path in life. So how could it be that Asa from birth already has this inclination towards idolatry and towards, towards negativity? That doesn't sound fair. That goes against what our understanding is of how the world works. So we have to understand that as well. Now, Asaph goes on to become a hunter and a murderer. He's very hot-blooded, and he's also a master manipulator. He's, the Talmud explains he's also not only a hunter of animals, but he's also a hunter of people. Besides murdering people, he also manipulates people, and he's very able to trick his father into thinking that he's a good guy. So Yitzchak becomes very attached to Esav and believes that Esav should be the heir to Abraham's spiritual legacy. Yaakov, on the other hand, the Torah tells us, is a simple, pure person, and he spends his days studying spiritual wisdom in tents of meditation, monasteries. And Esav, on the other hand, is a man of the field, and he's out hunting and murdering. So, the question is, is who should be the inheritor of Avraham's mission? So who do you think is the rightful heir? The person who's connected to spirituality, who spends his days meditating on God, or the person who's out in the field hunting and even murdering? So the simple reading of the Torah, you'd say, well, obviously, it's, uh, it's Yaakov is the rightful heir. But then you have to ask a question. How was Yitzchak so wrong in this? And we all know the story uh, of how Rivka sees through Esav, and she, it comes time for Yitzchak to give his blessings to his, his oldest son, to his firstborn son. So he calls in Esav, and he says, Go hunt for me some game. And bring it, make me some food, and I will eat it and feel good, and then I will give you a blessing. And Rivka overhears this, and she tells her son Yaakov, Yaakov, we're going to play a trick on your father. Go out and put on some, put on some fur on your arms so that you feel like your brother. Yitzhak at this time is blind, and you're going to come in and tell your brother that you're Esav, and you'll get the blessings. How could that, how? The whole story is so shocking to us, because... It's just like such manipulation and such basically open lies, it seems like. How could it be that the, the Torah is meant to come through such cunning and trickery that Yaakov is supposed to inherit his father's legacy and his grandfather's spiritual mission through trickery? The whole story doesn't make much sense. So I'd like to explain it as follows. Yitzchak understood what the mission of the Torah was. What was the mission of the Torah? What did Avraham bring into the world? So let's let's recall from two weeks ago that the mission statement of Avraham is the idea of bris, circumcision. That before Avraham, there were monotheists. Like we mentioned, Shem and Aver were monotheists. They were prophets. There were many prophets and monotheists according to the Torah. But what was unique about Avraham's path was the idea of circumcision. Before Avraham, God was in heaven. God was above in the spirit in spirituality. If a person wanted to connect to God, they went to a monastery and they meditated and they separated from their physicality. They separated from their bo- bodily and physical pleasures and desires and they disconnected from the world in order to connect to spirituality. What Avraham innovated was that God exists in the physicality 
in the physical world. That it's not enough to, to meditate, we have to bring God into our actions, into the world of action. And that's the idea of bris, circumcision, is that in the most physical part of the body, that's where our pact and our relationship with God exists. To hear more on this, listen to the podcast, The Secret of Circumcision, from two weeks ago. So Avram's Torah is bringing spirituality into the physical, not meditating and disconnecting. So if you look at Yaakov and Esav, who do you think makes more sense to be the rightful heir to Avraham's mission? Is it Yaakov, who's spiritually pure, disconnected from physical desires and physicality, who's a goody-goody sitting in a tent? Or is it Esau who struggles with the dark side of life, who goes out into the fields, who's connecting to physicality? So in reality, commentaries explain that Esau and Yaakov were supposed to be partners in the spiritual legacy of Avraham. Esau was supposed to go out into the fields, out into the marketplaces, and to connect to people, to go to the houses of idolatry. That's why he kicked whenever they went past a house of idolatry. To go to the places of the world and connect to people with his talents of speech, with his oratory abilities, and to inspire and to, and to bring people in to the tents of Yaakov. And then Yaakov would be the priest to connect them to Torah and lift them up. To spirituality. It was supposed to be a duality, an existence that worked together, a coming together of the physical world and the spiritual world. They were arguing over the two worlds. It doesn't make sense that they should be arguing because really Esau's world was this world and Yaakov's world was the next world. And it made a lot of sense. Esau means literally done, the world of doing, the world of action. He's hairy. Hair corresponds in Kabbalah to power and to influence. And he's red, which corresponds to strength. He's too much strength, almost. He's fire. He's full of physical desires. He's hot-blooded. And according to the Hasidic texts, a person with more desire, right? You can have a person who's born with a lot of desire to do negative things. There are certain people that love food, that love physicality, that have all sorts of lusts and desires. And then there's people who are born who are just kind of cold-blooded, who just, they don't have so much desires to do negative things. They're just good good by nature. And there, there is such a thing of people who have more inclination toward negativity. And the, the, the Hasidic texts explain that the person who's hot-blooded has much more potential to do good than the person who's cold-blooded. The person who's naturally good, so they're not getting much credit for that goodness. It's part of their innate nature. The person who has all sorts of negative inclinations, that person has the ability to channel their negativity towards positivity, and then they have the ability to do incredibly good things. So we don't get credit in God's book based on our outcome. We get credit on our struggle, on our growth. We get credit for how much we try. So Asaph really has this incredible potential. He's born with so many challenges towards negativity, and yet his true potential is to channel that and to lift it up and to elevate it and to literally go out into the world and to bring people back to spirituality and to God. And his brother Yaakov is supposed to then just be the final teacher of spirituality, the priest who's supposed to elevate everything. But Yaakov, Esau's job is really the main, he's the main player. He has the potential to be the true leader of the Jewish people. So, why does Rivka go to shame 
when she's having this conflict inside her, she has this schizophrenic baby who wants to run out at the house of meditation, of, of monotheism, and wants to run out of the house of idolatry. Why doesn't she go to Avraham? Because Avraham's Torah was a Torah of unity. Avraham saw the God within the physical. His mission was to bring body and soul together. He didn't understand the world of conflict. Shame, who was an earlier monotheist, he understood the concept of conflict between body and soul. Because his whole spiritual vision was one of dichotomy, of disconnection from body to connect the soul. So he would understand this conflict within Rivka, that this baby was connecting to spirituality, and yet at the same time connecting to a negative form of spirituality or physicality. So it makes sense that Esav should really be the father of the Jewish nation. There's only one problem. Rivka sees through him and she sees that Esav is getting pulled down. He can't overcome it. His pull towards negativity is too strong and he's losing that battle. Rivka sees the truth just as Sarah did with Yishmael. Sarah was, again, the Jewish mother, was the one that determined who the rightful heir was. That's the power of the femininity, of limiting, limitation, in order to build. So, there's a major problem though. Yaakov, who's a spiritually pure person, doesn't have what it takes to continue the mission of the Jewish people. How is he supposed to take on Abraham's mission of bringing spirituality into physicality if he himself is completely disconnected from the physical, completely good by nature? So, Rivka recognizes that in order for Yaakov to be the father of the Jewish nation, he has to learn to be a trickster. He has to go into the world of manipulation. He has to go and trick his father. He has to go and live with his uncle, Lavan, who is the greatest trickster. We'll talk about it more next week. And he has to learn to, to be a manipulator. He has to learn to play the game of living in the world in order to be able to bring spirituality into physicality. So Yaakov goes literally into the trickery. And the word Yaakov actually means heal, but it also connotes trickery or crookedness. But there's another meaning to the word Yaakov. Yaakov also corresponds to the idea of Akev, which means a heel, the lowest part of the body, and also the letter Yud, which corresponds to spirituality. That Yaakov has within him the potential to bring spirituality into physicality. And after he goes on this crooked path and learns how to live in the world, then he gets a new name. Yisrael, which means the straight one of God. He's reached a place that he no longer has to be crooked. Now he's straight. He's reached the level of balance. And Yaakov can be the father of the Jewish people. Literally, the Kabbalistic energy of Yaakov is Teferis, which is harmony, the balance between kindness and strength. Yaakov learns to bridge the gaps between the legacy of his grandfather, Avram, kindness, and his father, strength, and he learns to balance it. Yitz Yishmal is too much kindness, and Esav is too much strength. Yaakov eventually learns to live in the middle between these two energies. And Esav and Yaakov fought over two worlds. Instead of just splitting it up, Esav taking this world and Yaakov taking the next world, they fought because Yaakov recognized that we need both worlds. It's not possible to have only one world. If you live only in this world without spirituality, you don't really get to enjoy this world. And if you live only in the next world, you're missing out on all the incredible spirituality that exists within this physical world. 
So let's talk practically and try to take something out of this, this story. The lesson for us is that as Jews, Yaakov got the blessings of Esav. It was supposed to be a partnership with Esav taking the physical world and Yaakov lifting it up to the spiritual, but instead the Jewish people took the legacy of both worlds. That means that a Jew has to live both in the physical world, in this world, and in the spiritual world. It's not enough to meditate on God, to be separate from the physical world, as you might find in the Far East. And it's certainly not enough to live in the Western world where all there is is this world, the world of money and pleasure. Instead, you have to do both. So a Jew has to take time in their life to connect the spirituality, but the goal is to get married, to have to work, to spend most of your day changing diapers, doing dishes, taking out the garbage, going to work nine to five, paying bills. And yet the Torah gives us a guide to connect to spirituality through the physical and how you conduct your business and how you get married and how you speak and how you farm your field and how you live in the world. And that's ultimately the mission of the Jewish people is to go out into the world, to reveal that God exists even in the darkness. And literally continuing on the, the, the curse of Adam, that good and evil become mixed. And our job is to find the good that's hidden in the world, not by staying and meditating in a monastery, but by going out into the darkness and into the confusion of this world while staying clear on our spiritual mission. This is a very important point that I've mentioned before, but I'll mention again that many years ago, uh, in the late 1800s, there was a great uh, rabbi of German Jewry named Shimshon Rafal Hirsch. And he fought very much against the early reform movement. And he said a statement that was going around on the internet at the beginning of the coronavirus quarantine period, when synagogues all over the world were closed for perhaps the first time in history. And he said... People quoted Rev. Samson Rafal Hirsch as having said that if he could, he would close all synagogues for a hundred years. So someone asked him, what do you mean? Why would you close all synagogues? And he said as follows, the reform movement was originally founded in order to combat anti-Semitism. And the belief was that if Jews would look like Germans, would act like Germans, if we modeled our synagogues after the church and brought an organ into the synagogue and began praying in German, then maybe, just maybe, they would stop hating us. And as we know, that mission failed because Germany, which was the most, where the reform movement began and was extremely successful in assimilating Jews to be like Germans, was the place where the Holocaust began. So we know that that wasn't true, that the Jewish people's mission is to be distinct and different. But what's very Interesting about this statement is that Rav Shemshel Wafar said that I wish we could close all synagogues. Why? Because the Reform Movement began to teach that just like Christianity, the focal point of Christianity is the church, they began to teach that the focal point of Judaism is in the synagogue. When we're in the synagogue, then we're Jewish. When we're in the street, we're German. And Rav Shemshel said that is incorrect. Because according to Judaism, the synagogue is not the center point of Judaism. Synagogue is a place we go. We might go to recharge, to disconnect from the world, to connect to spirituality, but that's only as, as a temporary fix. But the goal is to go out into the world. The center point of Judaism is the home. The home is where we really live our Judaism. And the workplace 
is where we put it into practice. Synagogue is not the focal point of our lives. A Jew has to live and be a Jew everywhere, in the street. It's how you live your life. It's not whether or not you're Jewish in synagogue. That's easy. It's whether or not you can stay true to your spiritual mission when you're out in the workplace. So, in order to go into the world of Asaph, though, in order to be able to conduct ourselves as a Jew in every situation, we have to start by spending some time living like Yaakov. We have to devote a significant portion of our life to meditating in a tent, to getting to connect to who we are and why we're here, to have clarity on our values, to have clarity on our, on our spiritual energy of what our, our challenges are, to know what we have to fix in our life, to know why our soul came into this world. And only then, once we have clarity on that, then we can go out and get married begin our life and go out into the work world. So you have to take time off to find yourself. We always recommend in Judaism that before starting your career, before getting married, you have to devote some time to studying who you are, to traveling the world perhaps, but more importantly, to sitting down and learning Torah. Take a, take a year, and in most Jewish circles, there's traditionally a year taken, a gap year between high school and college, to devote to getting clarity on what life is all about. In the Western world, we often define ourselves by what we do. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. What are you? Oh, well, I'm, you know, when you first meet someone, usually introduce themselves by what do you, the first question you ask, you meet someone at a party, first question you ask, what do you do? All right, really what we're asking is, what's your, what's your, uh, what's your bank account like? What's your, uh, how, how, how beneficial are you for society? That's the Asaph way of seeing the world. Asaph, the Torah tells us something very interesting. When it describes Asaph and Yaakov, the Torah says, Asaph was a hunter. He was a man of the field. Yaakov was a pure man. He sat in tents of study. And if we look at this clearly, at the different way that it describes them, See something phenomenal. That by Asa, first it tells us what he did. He was a hunter. Then it tells us who he was. He was a man of the field. Yaakov, it's the exact opposite. Yaakov was pure. He, and, then, and then it tells us what he did. He, he sat in tents of study. Asa defines himself first by what he does. Asa lives in the world of doing. He defines himself by the fact that he's a hunter and that determines his essence, he's a man of the field. Yaakov, on the other hand, knows who he is first. He knows what his essence is and what his mission and values are, and what he does flows out of it. First, you have to know who you are. You have to have clarity on your values and who you are on the inside. And what you do is, at worst, just a means to support who you are. Your job doesn't have to be your purpose. Your purpose is the meaning of what you're living for. Your job sometimes can be a means to allow you to do what you really value in life. Problem is when your job becomes your identity, then everything begins to break down. Your job is just something you do. And at best, it's an outflow of who you are. But your actions, your job, your bank account, your successes, and even more so your failures 
do not define you. A Jew has to live in both worlds. Asaph's world, the West, eat, drink, and be merry, for on the morrow you die. This world is all there is. And in the East, especially in the Far East, and to some degree in the Muslim world, all there is is God. Ain Allah, Allah, Allah. All there is is Allah. And a Jew has to live in both worlds. It's very interesting to note that the Christians, the West, took Shabbos and moved it to Sunday. The Muslims took Shabbos and moved it to Friday. And there we are right in the middle. The Christians took the calendar and they made a completely solar calendar. Western world follows a solar calendar. The Muslims follow a completely lunar calendar. The Jews follow a calendar that is both solar and lunar. Right in the middle. The Muslim world writes from right to left. The Christian world writes from left to right. And the Torah is again right in the middle. We write from right to left, but the crowns on the Torah are written from left to right. And it's no coincidence that our birthplace is in the land of Israel, literally the Middle East, the center of the world, the unifier between Europe and Asia and Africa. That's exactly where we lie. Because our mission is to unify both worlds, to bring spiritual world, the next world, in to this world and to show that the two can live in complete harmony. So I want to bless you all with a beautiful Shabbos and to take a few moments in the next 24 hours to think about who you are and why you're here. And if we can get that clarity, Shabbos is an oasis. It's a tent of Yaakov in order that we can then go in the next six days of the week into the world of Esau with strength and clarity of our mission and our purpose in this world.